Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So I'd like to thank um, Carl Brooks and Ed Gibbons for giving up their time today. So um, in the first of these um, joint ventures with Hampshire Hospitals, we we did three topics, which was probably too many. We were uh, running a bit short of time. So today we decided we'd pick two very different topics, but two topics which are very relevant to um, what we all deal with in general practice and what people see on a regular basis. I have to say, um, heart failure is something that can seem quite straightforward and quite simple, um, but actually when you're managing it, it can uh, become quite complex, particularly with some of the modern regimes. And dermatology is something from a student that um, I, I've always struggled with, and uh, the more education I've gone, the more I've enjoyed it, but I still don't think I, uh, going to come in towards the end of my career, thought I was any better than I was at the beginning. Um, so I'm sure Ed will enlighten us and give us lots of pearls of wisdom as Carl will. So we're going to start off with heart failure and I'll hand over to Carl to uh, get us going. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Carl Brooks. I'm a cardiologist at HHFT with a, a specialist interest in um, this particular condition. Uh, there are three of us and I'll, I'll mention that a little bit later on. So what I was hoping to do is just take you through just in the next 15 or 20 minutes or so things that I thought might be helpful or relevant. Uh, in terms of how you might manage or diagnose uh, the syndrome uh, of heart failure in the community. I'd like to start off just with the nomenclature, unfortunately. It is one of my bet noirs. Um, heart failure is such a, uh, an unhelpful term. I mean, I think it's both lazy and pejorative. And it's lazy because it doesn't tell us really what is going on with the heart. And I'll come back to that later on. And it's pejorative because it implies a degree of irreversibility and the word failure just resonates with patients. I don't know whether it goes back to when they were called an abject failure by their teachers or their parents at home, but when they hear the heart, word heart failure, they think they've only got a matter of minutes or days to live. And so I would just caution, if I may, you using the term in, uh, you know, when talking to patients because um, you know, I, I do spend a lot of my time, you know, when, when they're referred up with, with the possibility of this heart failure diagnosis, telling them that they haven't got it or that there's something else going on. And they, um, you know, the, the relief on their face is, is enormous. So I, I do think it's an unhelpful term. And indeed, at Hampshire Hospitals, I've started calling the clinic and the staff the heart function team now rather than the heart failure team. It's only one word, but it, but it does... I, I think just help in terms of how we manage the patients. Essentially, when, you, when you're faced with someone who's got this constellation of symptoms of breathlessness and a bit of fluid retention, we need to establish whether really it is the heart that's causing the problem or something else. And if it is the heart, is it this thing called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or is it heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? Uh, because the, the, the difference is simply uh, in, in terms of how we manage them. If indeed we then find out that, it, that the heart is not working with a reduced ejection fraction of systolic dysfunction, then we need to determine the cause because quite a lot of those causes are reversible and the heart can get completely better. And then I think once we've established whether, whether or not there's severe left ventricular systolic dysfunction or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, then we do need to start talking about the end of life stuff and I will come on to that. And I think the earlier that we start those kind of discussions and preparing people, the better. So just in terms of the 
the prevalence, it's, it's generally speaking, it's a disease that affects the older uh, members of the population, uh, median age there of 76. And the only reason really I've shown this slide is that, as you can see, the survival rates when you have severe LB systolic dysfunction, or reduced ejection fraction, the survival rates are 50% in two years. So it does mean that we need to start having that conversation about end-of-life wishes once that diagnosis has been made. In terms of quality of life, it, it, uh, it reduces quality of life uh, more than most of the other chronic diseases. And there are an awful lot of things that we can do to improve that quality of life, even if we're not necessarily improving prognosis. Now then, the clinical signs are tricky, um, and the clinical diagnosis is tricky, um, as you can see here. Dyspnea gives you 100% sensitivity for this constellation of heart failure symptoms, but the specificity there you can see is only 17%. So only 17% of your breathless people will have so-called heart failure. Uh, orthopnea is not very sensitive, but more specific. And in fact, when you're looking for reduced ejection fraction, the only thing of use in the history is a previous myocardial infarct. So if people have had bypasses or stents or infarcts in the past, and they come in breathless and swollen, then there's a very good chance that they will have elbow systolic dysfunction. But all of the other things uh, are pretty useless in terms of symptoms and signs. And this is the scourge, really, the scourge of what we're, what we're dealing with at the moment. Not only does obesity cause all of the symptoms of heart failure, both breathlessness and fluid retention, but we're now even identifying obesity-related cardiomyopathy. And um, it was only at the tail end of last year that we had a woman in her 30s who came with a BF arrest and the diagnosis was made of obesity-related cardiomyopathy. So... I would say 50% of the people that you send to me with a query diagnosis for heart failure are simply flat. And uh, we need to try and establish how we can separate these, these um, uh, diagnoses. So in terms of, in terms of just when you're, when you're sitting there faced with a patient like this, the clinical likelihood depends a bit on the history, as I've said before. So if patients have had cardiac disease in the past, whether that be hypertension, heart, um, heart attacks, arrhythmias, etc that increases the likelihood. If they haven't had any, uh, I would suggest looking for other diagnoses. Similarly, drugs, and there are a lot of drugs that, that cause fluid retention, and amlodipine is the bane of our lives, really. It's used an enormous amount of treatment of blood pressure, but can cause ankle swelling and quite a significant leg edema, even late on in the course of its use. Obviously, blood work, and the important things here, I think, are anemia and thyroid function, because if but a hemoglobin of five, you would be breathless and swollen. And similarly, either hypo or hyperthyroidism can mimic uh, or cause heart dysfunction. Obviously, if they're smokers, aspirometry is helpful. And then I wouldn't underestimate the value of the ECG in the chest radiograph because if these are both normal, the chances of severe LV dysfunction are less than 1%. And so you could be re reasonably relaxed if both the chest x ray and the ECG are normal. And then I'll come to BNP in a minute, because that's uh, been an interesting time. And then obviously the, the, the investigation of choice of the necrocardiogram. And uh, that will help, help in an awful lot of case, um, uh, cases. So, so the BNP, it always strikes me as odd that it can represent this more little partisan outfit in this country, but it can also be a stalwart of the European Union. 
But in, in, in the terms of how we're dealing with it, the NT Pro BNP is something that a lot of you are now requesting. And it causes quite a lot of consternation. I thought it would be helpful just to run through some of the figures. So if it's naught to 400, you can be relatively relaxed with very little going on at the heart. Between 400 and 2000, I think you can be sure that we don't really know, okay? And further investigations are needed, but not, it, it may well not be significant um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Atrial fibrillation, COPD, previous PEs, hypertension, all of those kind of things, age, renal dysfunction, can cause a BNP rise of that, that degree. So I really don't, uh, it, whilst it might you know, initiate further diagnostic evaluation, a BNP of 2000 is, is, is not particularly helpful. If you get a BNP of greater than 10,000, then that almost always correlates with significant LD systolic dysfunction to reduce the ejection fraction. And the 2,000 to 10,000 thing, it's a bit verified. So if we look at the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, because this is, this is also known as LV diastolic dysfunction, and it's a very, it's probably about 50% of the proper heart failure um, diagnoses that we get. It tends to be older patients with both hypertension and diabetes and more common in women. And it's essentially what has happened to the heart at the time is that it's getting stiffer. And so it doesn't relax so much, and, and therefore um, you, you, your left atrial pressure goes up, and then the pressure in the pulmonary capillaries goes up, and you get pulmonary congestion. Trouble with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is that there are no treatments that have been shown to prolong life. So we're only, and we've looked at quite a lot of, uh, a lot of drugs. And so what you're in, into doing there is symptom management, and the symptom management is control of the heart rate, control of the blood pressure, and then control of fluid. And almost all of them will need regular loop diuretics. There's a little bit of su suggestion that spironolactone and the plurinone, the MRAs, might be helpful, not just in terms of symptom relief, but they might reduce heart failure admission, but there's a lot of work going on. But if you're faced with someone like this, there is no harm in starting them on a diuretic early, uh, maybe adding in spironolactone, controlling their blood pressure and their heart rate. And then you can be you know, reasonably relaxed, refer them up for a neck to confirm the diagnosis, but at least get on with, with that simple treatment to start with. Now, the reason that I get out about the redu reduced ejection fraction group is because there are all of these causes here um, that can result in uh, LBSD. And the thing is, is quite a lot of them, if you treat them properly, um, the heart failure, the reduced ejection fraction will get better. So valvular heart disease, thyroid disease, tachyarrhythmias, and alcohol, they're all treated. There's a, there's, there's a, a very good chance that the left ventricle will recover and your patient will no longer have this diagnosis of heart failure. And so that's why I feel uneasy about using the term. Now, the reduced ejection fraction has had a huge amount of uh, search done over, on it over the last you know, 20 years or so, and you'll know most, most of this. But what I would like to just counsel you on is this, these things on the right, on the left-hand side of the screen here, are kind of equally important. So rehabilitation, you know, simple exercise is still a good thing to do uh, in, in, with, in people with LBSD or reduced ejection infection. Palliative care when it's needed is, is extremely helpful. Dietary advice in terms of salt and calories and fluid and all of those things are 
important. And then counselling about the long term, managing the psychology of, of this diagnosis is also important. Um, and I, please don't ignore any of them because I think the temptation always is to go down the drug route and forget about those other options. Now, in terms of useful drugs, uh, the ones on the left here are essentially the ones that we use because they either reduce heart rate emissions or prolong life. The ones on the right are drugs that you can use safely if you need to, but haven't been shown to have an outcome impact. Um, and uh, you, will, you will know the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs, the beta blockers, and the spironolactones, etc. There are a couple of new ones at the bottom here that I think are worth mentioning for this talk. Um, Entresto, which is uh, Secubitril, Valsartan, and I'm sure you will have some patients on that. So it's a mixture of a nephrolysin inhibitor uh, and an ARB. And that's been shown to, to uh, prolong life in people with severe LBSD. And then the new kids on the block are the SGLT2 inhibitors. So the flozins, the empagliflozin, vapagliflozin, and there will be others that come along. And interestingly, although these are diabetic drugs, the newest study called DAPR-HF, which I'll briefly mention, is dapagliflozin uh, used in non-diabetic patients uh, for heart failure treatment. And it's now had a nice recommendation. And the final thing, a new thing just to think about is, is intravenous iron therapy in those who have an absolute or relative iron deficiency, which improves their symptoms. So this is DAPR-HF. It's 10 milligrams of dapagliflozin uh, once a day, in addition to all the other medications in people with quite significant LV dysfunction. And it shows here an absolute, 5% absolute risk reduction in heart failure, hospitalization, and CV mortality. And there are remarkably few side effects with this drug, remarkably little effect on kidney function, etc. There are a few things that will be a, few, a little bit of counselling that you have to do in terms of glycosuria and genital infections, but it's a, it's a remarkably safe drug. Uh, so there will be a few people, I think, coming out on that. The other thing is, is uh, iron deficiency, and, uh, which is pretty common in heart failure, even without, even in the absence of an anemia. And, um, these are the, actually the relative diagnosis. If the ferritin is less than 100 micrograms per mil, that's enough to consider giving intravenous iron. And we're setting up a kind of daycare service at both Winchester and Basingstoke that will allow that to happen. So if you feel that things people aren't getting better, that's, that's certainly something just check. It doesn't improve length of life, but it certainly improves quality of life and effort tolerance. Drugs to avoid, equally important in this, and uh, I really would um, I really would try and uh, get people off these if at all possible. So the non-steroidals retain fluid, the glitazones make you retain fluid and complicate things. Brapamil and diltiazem are both negatively ionotropic, and amlodipine is in there, uh, uh, big on fluid retention. These other drugs are complicated and they, they um, are probably more troublesome for the heart. Steroids, again, it is fluid retention, but dronedarone and alaskirin, uh, I would avoid. This is just a, a paper from a long time ago, just showing the value of um, people who care, really. So the, these two graphs you can see in the bottom, there are only 80 people in each group. Um, and these are people who are admitted with heart failure and those who were just sent out from hospital without any follow-up. And those that were sent out of hospital with nurse follow-up to check they're taking their drugs and managing their kidney function, etc. 
And we can see this is a mortality study. So on the, on the left-hand side, you can see a 20% reduction in mortality by keeping people on the right drugs. Uh, and so it is really, really important. Uh, and that's why we have our heart function specialist making this. Certainly as cardiologists, we're pretty rubbish at this, this particular bit. And the reasons for decompensation, I think it's 42% of people take them off, take themselves off drugs for whatever reason. Others don't get put on the right drugs, and then there you know, a whole load of concomitant things. But this is a really, really important bit of heart failure management, and that is making sure people understand what they're taking and why they're taking it and trying to get them to continue with it and getting them onto the maximum tolerated dose. Just as a final thing, I, we do need to talk a bit, a bit about the, uh, the trajectory of death in people with severe elevated dysfunction because it is a it is problematic. Um, as you can see in the top graph, mainly cancer. But with both heart failure and COPD, we have this sort of second, this second graph down here where you get multiple episodes of people who get acutely unwell and then they seem to get miraculously better with, a, with some intravenous diuretics and then they get kicked out again. And then they come back in again and then they get kicked out, et cetera, et cetera. And the trouble is, is no one feels very comfortable about having that discussion about end-of-life care. And so you get to the right at the end and then no one really knows, uh, you know, everyone sort of is a bit surprised that people have died. And when you look at the figures that I showed at the beginning, I think it is important that we do start this with, certainly by the second admission with an acute heart failure syndrome. Because you know, it, death, death will be inevitable in, in the not too distant future once that starts happening. Um, and this, this is, Another important thing just to take away, so it's not, it's not always the heart failure symptoms that are causing all the distress towards the end of life. It's the psychological and the other non-cardiac symptoms. And we as cardiologists are not always as good at addressing this and so work very closely with palliative care, but I suspect you in primary care would be a lot, lot better at managing these, these, others, these other symptoms. But it's a really, really important part of their management as they come to the, uh, come to the end of life. And then, as you can see at the bottom, in a third of cases, this was a study a few years ago, a third of cases, management plans were ignored when they came into hospital. And again, I hope we're doing better than that now with advanced care planning, but it still worked to do that. So I think the, you know, the, mo the best model for, um, uh, for heart failure is this model that's been proposed in C here, where we gently transition from um, active care looking at um, life prolonging treatment to active care that concentrates on symptom treatment, but then gradually involving uh, palliative care for those non-cardiac symptoms at the end. And then of course, you know, the equally important bit of bereavement care at the end of it. So um, this, is, this is what we're trying to, trying to do within HHFT. We've got an, an awful lot of um, help and support from our palliative care teams. Um, and I'm hoping that we will build up the community palliative care service as well. So when you get to the end of life, I, I think don't worry too much about prognosis. The, the really important thing is the quality of life and not the quantity of life when they get to that stage. Uh, and I do think rather than us purely handing over care to either to you or to the palliative care services, keeping a shared care approach to manage those, those end of life symptoms is extremely important. Now, none of this is easy. Uh, and of course, um, you know, I, I think the, the more we communicate with each other uh, with regards to these patients, the better. 
And the decisions that we have to think about are not only the resuscitate ones, but also there's this tricky thing these days with these devices, whether, whether you should keep them active or inactivate the ICD um, component of the device. And patients always think that if you're going to turn off the ICD thing, you're going to, you know, they're going to drop down dead straight afterwards. So there's a bit of counseling about that, but it's just to stop the event, the device firing in the event of a terminal arrhythmia. And we will do that within the pacing service. So uh, in conclusion, uh, and then sort of finally, there is this, this option you know, through our heart function clinic that uh, we could uh, you know, keep in contact with us. There is a 24 hour uh, line there that will you know we'll get back to you in working hours. The patients use it quite a lot, and they're very very keen on it. And we'll all three of us, uh, Don Kelly, myself, and Jason Glover, are very happy to be contacted directly to discuss some of these patients. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Um, so, can I ask you the first question, um, which is partly my age? Is you know I can remember when I first started as a GP when we. Um, used to get called in the middle of the night and it was quite regular. The, the, the intravenous drug that I used most in the first few years was fruzamide. It was very common to go out at three in the morning, um, give somebody some uh, fruzamide because they were in crashing failure. We probably kept them at home, didn't send them in, but that doesn't, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, that just doesn't happen. People don't present in that way. Well, why, why? Why do you think the disease has changed so much? You got better at your job, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it, I think it's the it, I think it's the concentration on the cardiac risk factor, particularly hypertension. Um, I'm just going to show the window because I've got it's particular hypertension and the, and the lipids, I think. And um, the the other reason is is that people who are coming in with heart attacks now get treated very very promptly and then don't go out with significant LV dysfunction afterwards. And so although we are keeping a few people and we're keeping more people alive, I think there is less, uh, there's less left ventricular damage as a result of acute infarct and untreated hypertension. And people are drinking more and people are getting fatter. So I, I think we, you know, we may, you know, it, it may go back a little bit that way, but I, but I don't think we'll ever go back to how it was in the, in the, you know, in the before primary angioplasty. And when you get these patients that present with breathlessness and you're not really sure, is this cardiac, is it respiratory? I mean, I presume what you're suggesting is that we, we look at some of those tests, you say, and then try and whittle it down, particularly looking at BNP and echoes if we, if we veer on the side of cardiac. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, as I said, the ECG and the echo, uh, sorry, the chest X-ray are normal. I mean, mm. you, you probably look for other things. But if you're really perplexed, you know, the BMP is a useful screening thing. It's useful if it's normal, and it's useful if it's greater than, you know, 10,000. Um, and some people would argue, you know, great, useful if it's greater than 2,000. It's, um, and, and that will indicate that there may be something going on in the heart, but it doesn't really tell you that there is a, a significant heart failure. So I think, you know, if, if the BMP is 2,000 and above, I think it's very reasonable to refer them for an echocardiogram. But you know, as I say, I think I reckon fifty percent of the people that I see at the moment who are referred in with it are simply too heavy. Yeah. Okay, um, I mean, and again, that's what a lot of people are thinking: why we're getting worse outcomes than other countries is because the level of obesity is higher. Yeah. 
in the UK. Um, Simon's asked a question, which is um, regards to um, DAPA. Uh, at what point would you add this in heart failure? And is this when the patient is still symptomatic despite standard treatment with ACE, uh, beta blockers, spiro? And is it something that we would consider starting in primary care or is this really a secondary care treatment? It's a very good question. It's, it's only recently, recently, only recently recommended, and the, and the, the study was helpful because the um, a lot of people were on the standard ACE, ACE inhibitor, beta blockers, etc. There were very few people on Entresto in that study, um, and there is a debate in the cardiological community about at what level do we do this? Do we do we do it before Entresto or after Entresto? Um, and I think we're just going to we're going to need to find our way over the next uh, year or two with that. You you will find a few people coming out, I and mean, we'd be we'd be happy for you to start it in in primary care uh, because it's actually really well tolerated. But I wouldn't do it until there are maximum doses of beta inhibitors, beta blockers, and spironolactone or aflorazine. So do those things first before considering. Okay, so um, got a patient with heart failure. I've whacked them on some fruzamide. They've got a bit better. They're now euvolemic. Do, do they then, do I then take them off it while I've got them on the ACE and beta blockers? And also with the ACE inhibitors and the patient has acute kidney injury, should we stop their ACE for a while um, if they've got heart failure? Is that going to make the heart failure worse? How do we balance those things up? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, the, I, I don't normally, um, I normally start the ACE inhibitor and the diuretics together. So you don't necessarily... Yeah. Have to make them new limit first before before you start them. So um, def definitely do those two things together. If the kidney function has drops off a cliff, then definitely I would stop the ACE inhibitor and see. It's pretty uncommon that it does in the absence of widespread vascular fatigue. So if you've got an arteriopath who's had you know, multiple strokes and has only got one leg <coughs> and has had previous bypass surgery, then the chances are they will have renovascular disease. And so in those people. I would try and tend to manage them without ACE inhibitors if possible. But otherwise, it's perfectly reasonable to stop the ACE inhibitor and see what happens. You've got, you've got um, you know, beta blockers, you've got the MRAs, you've got other things to use, and then you can always um, search for advice um, after that. But stopping them is not going to cause a dramatic deterioration on their heart rate. Okay, what, what's your view on using bumetanide versus fruzamide? As I always remember being taught that Bumetamide is more powerful, so use fruzamide first if it doesn't work, but that's probably yeah. um, now. I generally uh, generally use fruzamide if it's breathlessness is the main problem. Um, if, however, it's more what we call right-sided, so a lot of peripheral um, fluid and the psyches and abdominal distension, bumetamide is better absorbed through the gastrointestinal tract if, the, if that's edematous. So those with primarily right-sided symptoms, I favour pumetanide, but would normally start with fruzamide and see how we can see how you go. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Carl. That's very, okay. really interesting and uh, very informative. Um, so we'll go for something completely different now, and I'll uh, hand over to Ed, who's a GP, um, but also has a special interest in dermatology. He's going to give us a dermatology update. Ed, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Nigel. Thank you, Carl. Very interesting talk. Um, can I just check if everybody can see my slides? Yeah, we can see them. 
feeling fantastic. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about skin lesion recognition. Um, I've been a GP now for about 11 years and, and I've been very fortunate on a couple of occasions. The first was as an SHO, I got to do um, a dermatology job um, for three months. And then more recently, I've been working as a link specialty doctor in uh, uh, Winchester and Andover. And essentially this role is about trying to collaborate between primary and secondary care um, to see how we can basically effectively use the limited resources that we have both in, in primary care and, and in dermatology and secondary care. Um, so what I'm going to focus on today is a little bit about skin recognition. And I think what I'd say is that this is essentially, it's a bit of a promotional trailer about skin recognition and particularly about the use of dermatoscopes. I've started back at kind of quite a basic level for the sort of GPST ones, twos and threes who might be in the audience, nurse practitioners who might be looking at skin lesions for the first time, or those GPs that just never feel particularly confident when they're faced um, with looking, looking at skin lesions. So if you're already a master of um, dermatoscopy, you might want to start checking your email or, or um, listen in. So in terms of upskilling in, in skin lesion recognition, I think dermatoscopy is probably the sort of biggest tool that we have um, in our um, armamentarium. And I have to say, you know, I am no expert at dermatoscopy. I've been doing it now for about four years. Um, the reason I started doing it was because I curetted a lesion of a patient's abdomen, which I was convinced was a benign compound melanonevus. And in fact, when I got the histology back, it turned out that it was a melanoma. And I thought I'd really better upskill in terms of skin lesion recognition. There are lots of good courses out there for it. There are some particularly good GP demoscopists, George Moncrief. Uh, from the Oxford area, Stephen Hayes, um, who's a more local GP, who has a fantastic um, bank of images and does very good talks. For the enthusiastic amongst you, the International Demoscopy Society, um, and there's a, a Cardiff a University demoscopy course, um, which is uh, more involved. So today, I'm just going to cover a bit of the sort of basics of history of looking at skin lesions, examination, um, and how to, how to get started with um, demoscopy. And I'm sure we all get those patients, perhaps, perhaps less so since COVID, but the, oh, while I'm here, doctor, can I just get you to look at this lesion my wife's seen, or can I just show you this before I go? And I think when we get faced with that in general practice, it's really important for us to remember to actually not just go straight to the lesion, but to rewind a bit and just find out a bit more about the lesion. And then after that, I'm going to just go through some common lesions that we see in general practice that are benign and how demoscopy can help to reassure us that these lesions are benign. And then to talk a bit more about some pigmented um, lesions, malignant lesions, SCC and high-risk BCC. And then finally, if there's time, we'll talk a little bit about tricky sites. So why is it important that we get good at diagnosing benign lesions in general practice? And I think what I've noticed working both in primary care and in dermatology and secondary care is that um, the two-week wait um, clinic is very useful for us, um, but we can easily overwhelm it. Um, and in the same way that we have 
staffing challenges in primary care. There are equally challenges in, in providing enough dermatology care. And the challenge with the two-week wait clinics is that they are a contractual obligation that those patients must be seen within two weeks. So the more we fill those clinics, the longer the routine wait for the um, perhaps more symptomatic inflammatory, inflammatory dermatology cases um, becomes. And so I'm going to talk a little bit today about a different option um, if you've got a challenging skin lesion that you feel you need advice on, but you don't feel fits into the two-week wait um, criteria. Now, as GPs, I think this is our you know, special area. We're, we're good at dealing with and coping with uncertainty. And if any of you saw the LMC talk a few weeks ago um, that was delivered by Kenwyn James about how we make decisions, he talked about this book, which I have to confess I haven't read, but I often see quoted um, by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, and how as our medical careers progress, we get very good at type one thinking where we can instantly recognize things and instantly make decisions about things. And there's the type two type thinking, which requires a bit more involved cognitive process in order to work out exactly what we're, exactly what we're dealing with. And it's the same with demoscopy. You can get very quick at being able to um, recognize lesions under the dermatoscope. And equally, there can be lesions that are more challenging even in secondary care. So if we think about, it, we see a lot of benign lesions. In fact, the majority of the lesions that we're seeing are almost certainly benign, but equally we do from time to time come across malignant lesions. But we also get this overlap area where there's some uncertainty because they don't fit into the obvious categories or there's something unusual about the history which makes it a bit more puzzling as to what we should do with these cases. And I think that these cases can be particularly helpful um, to discuss with a colleague who might have an interest in dermatology within the practice or within your network, or to refer up as an advice and guidance into dermatology. And in fact, you may get a quicker opinion through advice and guidance than you will do through the two-week wait um, pathway and with less anxiety for the patient who's waiting um, on, a, on a cancer pathway. So most of this, I think, will be familiar to many of you when we're thinking about um, the history. Obviously, we know about the age of the patient, the greater the age, the greater the amount of sun exposure usually. We need to think about the skin type with the very fairest skin types being at the highest risk. Family history, and I'll come on to talk a bit more about how much that might increase your risk um, if, in some further slides. A bit about sun exposure. Are they someone who's lived abroad in a hot climate? Have they spent their life doing outdoor work? And a bit more about the actual history of the lesion. How long has it been there? Is it a long-standing lesion that's changed? So when we're examining the patient, think about what, where you're looking. Is this a sun-exposed site? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that if a lesion has occurred on a non-sun-exposed site, such as under a breast, it can't be malignant, but the amount of sun exposure that someone has had on certain sites of the body obviously increased the risk of a lesion being malignant on one of those sites. And I very much have this philosophy with the, along with the orthopedic surgeons to keep things really simple. So they use the look, feel, move. And I think in dermatology, we should be using a look and measure ideally so that we can give information on the referral. Feel, 
So feel the lesion. Does it feel firm? Does it feel indurated underneath? Is it actually a lot bigger when you palpate around it than the actual lesion is on the surface? And then scope. By what that I mean using the dermatoscope. And ideally, if you're using a dermatoscope, getting an image. I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. So essentially, the dermatoscope is just another scope. Um, and I would say it is significantly easier to use than an ophthalmoscope. Apparently, this is what the back of our eye looks like. I've spent about 15 years pretending that I know what I'm doing when I'm holding an ophthalmoscope. And actually, when I tell a patient that the back of their eye looks fine, what I usually mean is that it looks red and I can see some blood vessels, and that's usually about it. But I'm not sure I've ever made any significant or life-changing diagnoses from the use of an ophthalmoscope. Bearing in mind Carl's on the panel, I won't um, make any comments about the usefulness of stethoscopes, but I think in terms of our ability as GPs to potentially save lives, the dermatoscope is probably the most important scope that we, we use. So in practice, again, trying to keep things really simple. Um, all of us have probably got an old iPhone that sits in the bottom of the drawer doing nothing. And these can actually be put to very good use by being attached to a dermatoscope. And in terms of transfer of images, I think people get very hung up about consent and GDPR and how to easily get images into patients' records. And I think the biggest game changer that we've had over the last few months with the onset of COVID is being able to easily and quickly transfer images into EMIS using AccuRx. And so I would recommend that if you do have an old iPhone, is that you simply send yourself a message that you would normally send to a patient to get them to send the photographs in. And you can then reply to that message and quickly and easily put the uh, images into the patient's records. And you can obtain verbal consent at the time for the from the patient to say that you know we are putting this image in your notes and we're using it for uh, diagnostic purposes only. It will only be seen by people in the practice with expertise in dermatology or consultants in secondary care. I get asked about what, which sort of dermatoscope is the best one to use, um, and. The one I use, and I think probably the favourite one amongst most people, is the Heine Delta 20. And essentially, it's a bit like the Land Rover Defend Defender. It's not particularly sexy, but it's very tough and robust. If it falls off your desk, it's probably not going to break. There are plusher, sleeker new models, but I just don't think they're probably going to last as long. And this is the book which I think is probably most geared towards us in uh, primary care. Um, and goes through things in a very succinct manner and is very useful for when you're setting out on um, undertaking dermoscopy. Bear in mind that if you do decide to buy a dermatoscope, there will be little change from about £1,000. And I would suggest holding fire because I think since the onset of COVID, a bid has gone through to NHSX from the Hampshire Isle of White uh, STPs to bid for uh, dermatoscopes and imaging equipment to supply to primary care. So, so watch this space. So I'm now just going to go through some common lesions um, with you. These are things that ideally we want to keep out of the two-week wait clinic. So the first one I'm going to show you, this is a dermatofibroma. And in this picture, you can see a 
pinch test being done. And what tends to happen, I don't know whether you can see my mouse here, but you get a dimpling effect when you squeeze the lesion between your fingers. Now, these are common lesions, more common in when men, uh, sorry, more common in women probably than men, often on the lower legs. They often come and are reported to us because they seem to be a new lesion and they are often irritated or irritating. And so the patient's attention is often drawn to these lesions. When we put the dermatoscope on, we see this is a very classic example, this sort of central white fibrous scar. And that is very diagnostic um, of a dermatofibroma. We've got patients sending us images in more often now during uh, lockdown via e-consult or through AccuRx. And I think you'd have to be a pretty confident GP, bearing in mind that even though this is a very good, high quality photo, uh, being sent something like this, I think it would be hard to diagnose based purely on the photo. When you get the dermatoscope up against it, you see these lovely lacoons, these little lakes um, of, of blood, which help us to recognise that we're dealing with a hemangioma. I think it's important to bear in mind that if you haven't looked at this with the dermatoscope um, and you see a new lesion that looks like this, which is elevated, pink, firm and growing, that is something that we should always be sending along to a two-week wait clinic. So another image here, if we were to get this on an e-consult, again, I think most of us wouldn't feel particularly confident about providing the patient with a diagnosis. This is something that we're going to need to see and look at face to face. And when we get the dermatoscope on it, again, similar to the last image, we can see these nice lacoons of blood. And we can see that we're dealing here with a hemangioma again. This one, perhaps some of us would feel slightly more confident about if we received this image through into the practice. It's essentially, it's a pretty good photograph. It's got a fairly stuck on looking appearance. It's got quite a well demarcated border. But again, it might be one where we feel given the degree of pigment and the slight differences between the pigment centrally and peripherally, we would want to look at this face to face. And what we can see here is a very classical picture of a seborrheic keratosis and when you start learning about demoscopy, there's different types of languages that are used, but I think the metaphorical language is sometimes the easiest one to help stick in your mind. And one of the things that's talked about when you're looking at separate keratoses, these little bright white dots, which are referred to as stars in the night sky. And you can clearly see here that this has definitely got these milia-like cysts or stars in the night sky appearance. The other appearance that we can see here are the darker areas, which are referred to as comedo-like openings because they look like comedones or blackheads. Now, this gentleman has sent a photograph in and you can see that you've got lots of similar looking lesions. So this would normally be reassuring to us. But having said that, the lesions do have an appearance that many of us might have concerns that we could be dealing with basal cell carcinoma, although it would be very unlikely to get so many in such close proximity to each other. And when you put the dermatoscope onto the skin, you can reassure yourself here that you're dealing with sebaceous gland hyperplasia and not with a basal cell carcinoma. 
because you've got these sort of little white fluffy clouds, which are sometimes described as looking like marshmallows. Um, and so we know that we're dealing with, 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 with sebaceous gland hyperplasia here. This is a very common presentation, I think, you know, living on the, on the south coast um, with an elderly population, keen sailors, skiers, windsurfers, we see a lot of these type of lesions. And again, we may feel reassured enough to diagnose this without necessarily getting the patient in the face to face. But if we were to see the patient, then when we looked under the dermatoscope, we would see this appearance and what we're seeing here are these little clusters of white dots, which are sometimes referred to as rosettes. And they are very classical for um, actinic keratoses. And you've got this background red purple pigmentation, which is showing the degree of sun damage um, on their skin. And again, using the sort of metaphors to help us to remember what these look like. This is sometimes described as looking like the sort of seeds or pips in a strawberry. I think we probably get overly concerned about actinic keratosis and the risk of development and progression of the lesions into squamous cell carcinoma. Yes, they can progress and there is a sort of spectrum of actinic keratosis through to Bowen's and then into squamous cell carcinoma. But actually the risk of transformation of a lesion like this within the next year turning into a squamous cell carcinoma is about one in a thousand. So we've got an opportunity in primary care to treat this and usually the treatment of choice would be something like Effidix applied at night usually for about four weeks with the patient expecting to get a florid reaction but then after completion of the treatment gradual healing we have to be a bit more cautious, I think, about some of the higher risk groups, and this would be patients who've had a previous organ transplant and are on immunosuppression, or people who've got very large numbers of actinic keratosis or previous history of a squamous cell carcinoma. One of the elements of looking at lesions, which is new to me since I've been uh, working on the Link Specialty Program, is this concept that actually our moles do change as we age. And you can see on the slide here that you've got a image here of the sort of typical appearance of an adolescent uh, mole. This would be a sort of typical mole or nevi um, in someone in their sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. And then this would be the appearance of the same type of lesion when they are above 50. And essentially they just become more blurred with time. If we're thinking about the risk in terms of nevi and the people who are at higher risk, the more nevi you have on your body, the higher your risk of developing melanoma. So that patients who have between 15 and 40 nevi have a 1.5 times risk of melanoma compared to the standard population. Those with 100 to 200 nevi have a 6.9 times risk of developing melanoma. So hugely more significant if they've got 100 to 200 nevi. A first degree relative with a previous history of melanoma increases your risk by about 1.7. And severe sunburn 
episodes where you're blistering sunburn can increase your risk by about 1.5 times. If you've previously had a non-melanoma skin cancer, that increases your risk by about 1.9. And if you've previously had an organ transplant or immunosuppression, then that can increase your risk by about 2.3 times. So I'm just going to briefly talk a bit about moles. And again, I think this is something that probably we might have got taught at medical school, but very few of us remember much of the dermatology, and it's always such a short training during medical school. But essentially, you can have junctional or flat nevi, um, and this is where basically the melanin is sitting between the uh, epidermo, the dermo-epidermal junction. You can have dermal nevi, which are usually raised, and I think these probably sometimes cause patients more anxiety. These are often congenital type nevi, and they can be sort of papillomatous or even wobbly. And essentially, if you've got a wobbly lesion under your dermatoscope, then that is a very reassuring um, sign. And then you can have a combination, so a compound or combined nevus, where you've got elements of a junctional and a dermal nevus occurring together. These, I think, are trickier to assess. Um, and so I think sometimes when we have these type of lesions, if we don't see a reassuring pattern on dermoscopy, then these can be ones, particularly if there's a history of change, where we may be considering getting further advice, fitting into that sort of uncertain category that we might want to advise, ask advice and guidance on. Moving on now to thinking more about malignancy. One of the terms that's often used when we talk about demoscopy and malignancy is this term called chaos. I don't know whether there's any art historians amongst us, but this is a picture called Chaos by George Frederick Watts. And I think really when we're looking at this picture, it's not really a type one thinking sort of pattern. We need to look carefully to try and work out what on earth is going on in this picture. And we can sometimes get that feeling when we're looking at moles as well. So if we're presented with an image like this, I think very few of us would have any doubt that we're dealing with something very sinister looking here, very unusual. It's not fitting into any sort of regular pattern. And the other practical advice that can be helpful as GPs when we're looking at lesions, even if we're not particularly skilled in demoscopy, is to think about the sort of pizza slice analogy now I've got a 10 year old and a seven year old. And if we're cutting up a pizza and one of them has more bits of pepperoni or something on the pizza, then they're gonna, that, that's, gonna cause a, that's gonna cause a fight or a riot in our house. So when we're dealing with skin lesions, we can sort of think actually, if this was a pizza and we were sharing it out, would everybody feel that they'd been, been treated fairly with the slice that they'd obtained? And so it can be quite helpful to divide the lesions into segments and think, well, actually, is this showing nice symmetrical behavior pattern distribution? We can compare that then with a lesion, which certainly wouldn't cause um, people to feel that they've been dealt with fair similar slices if these, were, if these were handed out. This would fit much more into the category of chaos. Um, and that would be a lesion which would need to go directly on a two-week wait. Now, people are pretty good at picking these up, I think. Um, and the reason for that is that these tend to grow quickly, usually weeks to months. They may ulcerate 
It can be tender and painful, typically occurring on sun-exposed sites. So most of us would feel pretty confident about sending those through on the two-week wait pathway. Basal cell carcinoma, this is a, these are images from both behind, behind the ear on, on two different patients. And you can see here how different the morphology can be in terms of basal cell carcinoma. One which is fairly easily and quickly recognisable as a sort of pearly lesion with some vascularity, even without a dermatoscope, we'd be wanting to send that uh, on to consider routine excision. The lesion on the, the right, rather tricky to assess, that would be one that we'd be getting in to see face to face and look at under the dermatoscope. When we're thinking about basal cell carcinoma, on the two-week wait pro forma, there is this category for high-risk basal cell carcinoma. And when you're considering sending a person on the, on the high-risk the high risk pathway, essentially we're dealing with lesions in this sort of distribution. And in fact, if you've got a lesion which is in this ocular region, re region certainly in the, in the sort of HHFT area, you can send that directly to oculoplastics. In many ways, sending it to dermatology first simply delays the patient actually getting to the appropriate treatment. But certainly any lesions in the sort of nasolabial area would be considered high-risk BCCs. And I think if you've got a rapidly growing lesion, which you think looks like a BCC, I think it is still worth sending down this pathway because there is the potential with a history of rapid growth that it may be an aggressive subtype or we may be dealing with a different type of lesion. And I think if you see a BCC occurring at the same site, again, that can warrant coming through the high-risk pathway. And equally, patients who've got a history of immunosuppression particularly organ transplant patients, I, again, I think you put through that high-risk pathway. Finally, and I think something that we could perhaps discuss at another date, there are particular areas on the body which don't seem to fall into typical patterns and are particularly tricky sites for interpretation of lesions and particularly tricky sites when we're looking at lesions from a demoscopy point of view. These are the facial lesions, acral lesions, so looking at palms and soles, genital lesions, and when we're looking at nails. And again, I think if you've got lesions and you've got dermatoscopic images that you are uncertain about, these are again very good um, areas to get advice from a, from a colleague within the practice network who is more experienced in dermatology or again sending through the advice and guidance pathway if there's any uncertainty. So I think in conclusion in the past we would often have said to people you know don't pick up a dermatoscope unless you've got adequate training. I think since Covid's come along and things have changed now in terms of the amount of imaging that we were using I would suggest to people who are not familiar with using a dermatoscope actually if you can use a dermatoscope and take a good high quality image that will be really helpful um, in getting a diagnosis uh, for the patient, either through asking one of your colleagues or through sending um, the uh, lesion up to us through advice and guidance in dermatology. Uh, the last slide here, I've just got um, a few resources where people might want to figure out an interest in demoscopy to look up um, and see 
uh, any more um, resources which have which you've got some particularly helpful videos for when you're first starting out um, on demoscopy. Okay, thanks Ed. That was really interesting and really helpful. Um, uh, things have probably changed now, but I, I think dermatology was often very poorly taught. Um, and as you say, we often had a, a week of it in a five-year training. And uh, I think uh, if, if I'd had your one-hour talk as a medical student, I'd have learned more about dermatology than uh, the uh, few days that I had. So that was really interesting. Thank you very much. Um, ben has asked a question about uh, AK in elderly people. So if, if the um, risk of uh, going to an SCC is so small, why put them through the effudix, which as you said, and I've certainly used it quite a lot and seen quite florid reactions, which can be quite uncomfortable. Um, why put them through that? I mean, I think it is not essential to. Um, there's, there's BAD guidance uh, out, which essentially suggests having a conversation with your patient about how important they feel treating this is. Um, so if you've got a very elderly patient um, and there's a uh, you know, an AK has a one in a thousand chance of transformation to squamous cell carcinoma within one year, and that patient has a has a life expectancy of two or three years. Then I would say that, that you know, there's no real need to treat um, these lesions. I think in patients that have had a lot of sun exposure in the past and are perhaps in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who've got an AK, there probably is more uh, merit in treating those, um, and certainly from a sort of uh, sort of co cosmetic and irritation perspective, I think pe people often prefer to try and rid themselves of the sort of scaly, crusty lesions, which um, can be sort of troublesome over the sort of forehead and and, uh, and scalp. So let me ask you three questions, sort of amalgamated into one, which is: any tips on taking high quality pictures or images using a dermatoscope? And actually, how how do you um, take that as a as a picture rather than just looking at it and put in the notes. And the, the follow-up question is, um, do you still use solar rays or do you think that's not, not as helpful? Um, I'll start with the solar rays because that's fairly straightforward. I mean, it's certainly in, in the Western CCG, that's now off the formulary. Um, it's, it's not really effective. You've got to have a very um, determined patient who's gonna persist with using that treatment because it takes several months. Um, and I think there are better better treatments, and certainly effudix can be used in a sort of more sl sort of slow burn regime, be just being applied a couple of times a week for a longer period of time. Um, if people are worried about getting a florid reaction, um, in in terms of the high quality imaging, um, I don't know how easy patient people are going to be able to see this, but essentially, the, there is an iPhone adapters that you can get, which means you can kind of hold a dermatoscope um, one handed which basically allows you to take uh, take pictures more easily. With, with the mobile phones, obviously, you often need to tap the centre of the screen to get really sharp focus. Um, and that's really important when you're taking a, a dermatoscopic picture um, because blurry ones just often aren't helpful. Um, so I think if, if, if people have got a dermatoscope in the practice and they've got an old iPhone, then those, those you know, kits can, can start to be used relatively easily. But I think we will, hopefully across the whole of Hampshire, we might be getting more kit um, coming into practices over the next few months. As I understand that there's a budget that needs to be spent by the end of April. Um, so uh, we, 
we may we may well be seeing seeing some new equipment arriving. And actually, once you've got the kit, actually taking the image and then downloading it, as you say, using um, AccuRx or other systems are available are actually relatively simple. Yeah, I mean, I think you know AccuRx has made life very straightforward um, for us. So, so all all I do with AccuRx is just put my phone number into the into the box, send the text message to me, and then respond, and it just goes into the notes. So that's a very quick way of getting it into the records yeah. without it um I, and i think i just i would just err uh, on the side of caution of using your own kind of regular mobile phone for taking images because most of us are on some form of google photo cloud and you know within moments these pictures have sort of left uh, and gone and gone to sit on a cloud so i think you're better using an old phone that's not um connected to, to those type of um, yeah. programs okay. Two quick questions. Uh, one is: Is Picasso going to make a comeback? I don't think it is. I mean, the MRHA um, have, uh, have, have, have suspended it at the moment. Um, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, obviously, where you are going to be treating lesions, you are treating sun-exposed skin. There is obviously a risk of getting other malignant lesions occurring at those sites um, but I think we from my understanding we were seeing far more uh, lesion occurrence and recurrence at those sites with Picato than we have with other treatments such as Epidix and Aldara. Um, it's a shame because it was very quick three day two, two or three day treatment it was it was great but um, I certainly haven't heard anything about it coming back yet. Okay, that's great. Um, is, is Carl still on the uh, webinar? Is he left to go to clinic? Um, Olivia, if you still email... Are, sorry? I'm here, I'm here. Oh, quickly then, Carl, uh, last question. Um, would you give an, an SGLT to a patient with a normal BMI? A normal... Um, normal BM, sorry. Normal BM, yeah. Yeah, that was the interesting thing. I mean, the, the original impactoflozin one was all in people with diabetes. In the DAFRHF study, only 45% of people had diabetes. So the answer to that question is yes. And it now has a nice recommendation to be used in people without diabetes. Uh, in what, you know, if they're still symptomatic with fluid retention on top of all the other normal drugs. Very interesting. That's great. Um, thank you all for attending. Um, I certainly found it very interesting and very useful and I hope you have. And can I particularly thank um, Carl and Ed for giving up their time and doing it and for Joe for running it on behalf of the LMC. So thank you very much and have a good day. Take care, everyone. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.